0: Clubhouse.
1: This is Caroline. This is Steph. This is Sheila. And
0: this is Mike. You're listening to the I Know This Much Is True podcast. Tonight we're talking about episode two, written and directed by Derek C and Friends. Another happy, happy episode, ladies. How are we oh, yes. thinking about this? Uh, this one?
1: Oh, this was rough. It was a lot. I definitely felt like my heart was pounding hard throughout most of it. I
2: was in tears for a good amount
0: of just when you thought that it could not get worse or deeper or more depressing after episode one. Here comes episode two. says, hold my beer. We're going to we're going to whip your ass a little bit.
3: (laughs) I said last time I didn't want to live in Dominic's world for very long and we spent our entire episode in his world and it was not fun. I did not like it.
1: I thought that we were going to actually follow what you had wanted. And when we started with the third grade field trip, yeah. I thought we were heading back to the 50s and we were going to stick there for a lot longer. So I was kind of surprised that, no, we barreled right back to the 90s <laughs> and having to deal with this current day everything. Yeah. As it spirals farther
2: and farther into just worseness.
0: <laughs> I don't think I could take much more of that third grade field trip, though. Oh my God. The locked in the bathroom. Yeah. It, oof, the look on his face when he comes out. I.
1: Oh. Mike, does this affect you any differently at all? The fact that you have a son with sa- with the same name? Because they say it constantly. Because I wonder about that. When I, if it, if it was like, Caroline, Caroline, are you okay? Like, if it would, like, get to me differently, does it matter to you?
0: It hits me every now and then if they say it in a way that sounds like how I would say it. I don't call Tom Thomas very often. He identifies as Thomas. Like, he'll introduce himself as Thomas. But I call him and I identify him very much as Tom or Tommy. So they're very good about saying only Thomas on the show. So I have not had a lot of flinching moments because of that, but it's happened a couple of times. So I was affected by this only because this was the kind of thing that I could see happening to him. And I feel like I had moments like this of just being kind of a, a doofus and not very with it as a kid myself. I feel like this was the kind of experience I definitely would have had. So of a lot of the things that happened in this episode, this whole public humiliation thing of Thomas in the bathroom really resonated with me in a really hard kind of way. Did you guys ever have experiences like this when you were a kid in school in front of your class?
2: I didn't have it in front of my class, but I got locked in my aunt's bathroom as a probably eight or nine year old. So right at the same time, the door gets stuck apparently and no one told me and I was in there and couldn't get the door open. So it's pretty traumatic. was in front of my family, which makes it Equally is worse because, you know, mean uncles who, you know, never let you forget things.
1: Steph, I was going to ask you about the, the twins aspect of it all and feeling like if one of your twins does something embarrassing, does your other one feel in any way extra humiliated or like, oh,
3: God, why'd you do that? You're embarrassing me, too. I haven't really noticed that too much, but I do notice that they sort of explain for each other sometimes with their older brother having autism. They explain for him sometimes. I've heard my daughter say, well, you know, because he's different. <laughs> so, I mean, I think that they're they're picking up on that and, and sometimes will maybe explain something for each other or why they did that or whatever. But I'm sure that that day will come. But that's another reason that I put them in separate classes at school because I didn't want them to have to constantly sort of watch out for each other or take care of each other. You know, they're only in kindergarten. But at this stage, they sort of, talk for each other sometimes and so I wanted them to be able to sort of form their own relationships with their teachers and friends and such so I didn't want them to be controlling each other in that way and also coming home and like tattling on each other for what they did in school or whatever.
1: So that's a huge thing in our twins group that is a constant source of conversation whether you keep the kids together or whether you separate them into different classes and everybody has their own reasons. I feel like there's plenty of people who say separate classes and there's plenty of people who said I'm not going to two different yeah. Halloween parties. I'm not going to two different whatever. Like, it's a, it's, too, it's too much of a pain for me. I'm not doing it. They're going to just be in the same class.
3: It's a huge pain to have them in separate classes for me. But I felt like it was best for them. Just because that's their, their personalities and their relationship. I felt like if it were identical twins, maybe... And they were both boy or both girl. It would be a little bit easier to keep them together, and maybe because they, they could form friendships. But mine are boy girl, so they have male friends and then female friends. So I w- I wanted them to be, have their own friendships and own life at school.
0: Did this resonate for anyone with siblings? And I, I stuff. I don't know if you have any siblings, but I, I know Caroline and Sheila do, and I and I do. Uh, the idea of the conflicted emotions that Dominic is voicing over in this scene about equally feeling bad for his brother and wanting to help him but also being super pissed and hating him and ruining the day for him personally and for the class for the field trip that conflicted emotion did that resonate as like a real emotion that you guys would have with the family member or, or a sibling
3: for sure I have two younger sisters one of them is really close in age to me and then my baby sister is 10 years younger than me so we always talk about how we don't have that much in common because she's in college and I'm like married with kids and so We just have different lifestyles. And um, like I was already off and married and out of the house when she was like 13. So we don't have some of the same childhood experiences. But my closer sister, yeah, there's always that. Like, remember when you did this and I got in trouble for it? And I mean, yeah, there's definitely sibling conflict when we were younger, for sure.
0: How about you, Caroline?
1: My siblings are also far apart from me. So I'm five years older than my brother and my sister's eight years older than me. So we're really far apart. So we actually didn't ever really have the same things at the same time. I'm thankful for that. (laughs) Um, And I said, when I have my kids, I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to keep them very far apart. And then I had three kids in 10 and a half months. (laughs) So don't declare what you're going to do, people. (laughs) Karma has a way of killing you on that. Sheila, how about you? So my brother's only a year younger than me. So we've been
2: together for a lot of our high school schooling years. And like I can't really say that he was like in any way shape or form like a Thomas to Dominic but he did like to hit on my friends so <laughs> he definitely wanted you know to be part of and I'm a year older than him so he definitely wanted to be part of that because you know I started going to concerts and he thought that was cool and he just always wanted to tag along so like when I was younger I was just like oh my god you're such a pain in the ass but you know as I got older now that we're adults and we he lived on the other side of the planet so you know time together is now very precious but when I was growing up it was just like can we get some separation?
0: I think I was a little bit closer to that. I'm the baby of my family. Uh, my sisters are five and seven years older than me. So they would take shifts as I, as we progressed through the years, they would take shifts where one was very good to me. And the other one was like super jealous and you're annoying, get away from me. And it would, and it changed over the years, but they let me tag along, but I always knew it always came with an implicit unstated rule that if I embarrass them, there would be retribution when we got home. So I was always aware of that. It was never made explicit, but I knew the price to hang out with them and their friends as the much younger sibling was, don't fucking embarrass us. (laughs) But yeah, they took turns liking me and disliking me as we all grew up together.
1: I thought something that was really interesting about this scene was Dominic's voiceover telling us that the other kids were such assholes about it. And while we saw some kids razzing about it, There were other kids who genuinely were concerned. The one little boy, Eugene, he kind of thought that he was being an asshole by like mentioning, you know, maybe turn it the other way. But that was a smart move. And he wasn't, you could see the look on the little actor's face. He wasn't trying to be humiliating. He was trying to come up with a solution. And when they were walking back down the bus aisle, one little boy like reaches out and hugs Thomas. Dominic's perception was that every single person hated Thomas and hated what had happened. But that's not actually what happened. Other people were kind of patting him on the shoulder and being like, it's okay, you're okay. I thought it was an interesting commentary on the narration. You
2: know, as an eight-year-old, I'm sure Dominic saw that as just like how he was seeing it. Everybody was, you know, feeling the same thing that he was feeling, that he was humiliated because of what his brother was doing. So he figured that everybody else was in on it. And he couldn't see, I don't think he could see the kindness in the actions.
1: It was one of those things, though, that it made me think because they were visually showing us on screen that these kids were acting differently. And he's telling it as an adult, that this is how it happened. I was like, oh, you do not have memories that happened exactly the way they really did. None of us do. Right? right. Like we talk about that a whole bunch about if you go back and think about what you thought was going on when you were a kid. And now if you examined it as an adult, you'd say, Oh, that's why my mom said that. Or that's why that person did that. It's so much easier to see. So I thought it brought up the the narration reliability question in the very first scenes.
0: And I think it becomes a, an issue in this episode and one of my kind of governing theories about Dominic. I, I don't know that Dominic is such a great, reliable narrator. Certainly not as much as we would like, especially when we're trying to suss out Thomas's recall, you know, uh, Dr. Patel will call later. Tell him that he's the control group, the healthy version of Thomas. But I don't know that that is a great example. I I think there are definitely some red flags here about Dominic and his version of events of childhood, and, and even more maybe recently.
3: His recollection of the past is that Thomas ruins everything. So I mean, he has a very negative and weighed down view of Thomas and his childhood. So I think I think his whole perception from however past 40 years is just a burden and Thomas has ruined everything and hopefully we can see some happy memories here and there but I don't think we're gonna see that many
0: I don't think we're gonna see very many either and what did it what did it mean that it was this stranger this not Dominic kid who's the one who understood Thomas enough to think about he's getting it backwards isn't that something that you would you would hope the the twin, the brother, the one who should be closer to him than any person on the planet would have understood about his brother? Oh, when you say left, he means he goes right. When he go when you say right, he goes left. That seems like something Dominic should have known about his brother.
1: We talked about this a little bit last week in terms of like, you know, when we're all in situations where we know what is the right thing versus when our emotions sort of like wash over us, like yelling at someone who's crying. And you know very well that's not going to make them stop crying. I do think that Dominic is absolutely a victim of that situation often, where his emotions get so much the better of him that he is practically incapacitated as to be a problem solver. When we see that throughout whether he's talking to Lisa the social worker or Dr. Patel he like almost forgets like you're there in an advocacy role yelling and saying rude words to them and in any way being aggressive towards them is not how you're going to get what you want out of the situation but he seems to get clouded by his emotions to the point of being ineffective.
3: I just felt like he's exhausted by all this like he's just done at this point, you know? I just feel like a sense of exhaustion and having no more to give in this situation. So I feel like the yelling and the cussing at them is just his point of like, I can't do this anymore.
0: Yeah. When he says it's been a long 40 years, he's, he's at his breaking point. And and I like the fact that we see Lisa, the social worker, Rosie O'Donnell and uh, Dr. Patel, both representations of the system that he is fighting against. But both of these women are advocates for him and his brother. And both of them are telling him you need to calm the fuck down. Like, you are not doing yourself or your brother any good by losing your temper here. Like, I get it. And, you know, I think Rosie O'Donnell's uh, character, Lisa, was, was very good at saying, I get why you're upset. But nothing good is going to come from you raising hell and losing your temper about this. You need to take a breath for his own good and for his brothers. He's not going to he's not going to do Thomas any good going on the way he's going on.
1: Did you guys want to talk more about how they didn't get to go to the Statue of Liberty? or Are you good with letting it go? Cause that was sad. That was sad, just that yeah. was sad. It was and we all want to Just think watching the... the boat. You know, oh, we all want to. Well, and isn't that isn't that a very uh, your ship has sailed kind of mm. metaphor there, right? Like a normal life just went away to the Statue of Liberty.
0: That's life with Thomas, though, right? You go mm-hmm. through all of that struggle, all of that agita and, and anxiety on the bus just to sit there on the rocks and watch it go away.
2: Makes me feel feeling like I'm, I'm at the train station when my ship comes in. <laughs> oh, there you go.
1: <laughs> You're so funny. I was gonna comment on your Ajana comment, but I was gonna like have to write to stuff like that means heartburn if you live up there. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. We don't use words like
2: that. Do we uh, need a
1: translator? Like, <laughs> seriously, Mike, I don't think about we... it. Sometimes, yeah. <laughs> do we have that many like isms that you know <laughs> Yeah, you do. Uh, Excuse not, me here while I'm nothing. eating my
0: sandwich I got my goal. Hey about a mm-hmm. Yeah. But... Anyway.
1: Me and Steph both looked at the the look on her face. I was like, oh, yeah, dude, that's (laughs) hard Anyways. Okay, so getting back to Dominic's struggles, you guys. You're so Uh. good. All right, so getting back to that, let's talk about his marriage and what went on with his family. Sheila, what did you think of Dessa and the baby Angela storyline?
2: I don't think you could find a more just point of your life that you just cannot recover from. And just watching that whole flashback scene, there was no redemption in any of it. And it, it makes me understand how Dominic has now no coping ability, so that when he was sitting in Rosie O'Donnell, Lisa Sheffer, and Dr. Patel, when he's sitting in their offices, he just had no ability to listen to what they were saying, and any sort of like adult, mature response could come out of him. I, I just don't see how he's a mentally well-functioning adult after watching that knowing what he's been dealing with Thomas for his long 40 years.
0: There are, there are only a couple things that really terrify me in life. Uh, I am terrified of cancer. You know, people are like, oh, I'm worried I'm going to die by drowning or I'm going to die by fire. Like, I am terrified of cancer. It's just too prevalent in our world. And I'm so I'm terrified of it. But as a parent, the only other thing that ever scared me was the idea of SIDS, which was not something I had ever heard of or knew about existed, honestly, before becoming a parent. It was like one of those things I was like hyper obsessive about when my son was like a baby and and constantly I was that parent who would stare at him kind of thing. So this was, this was like a nightmare come true. And I, I imagine for, for any parent, it's gotta be a nightmare come true, but it was interesting to see how he reacted and he became so angry at the support systems. What did you guys think of his throwing shade and like real, real, real anger on the SId support group and and the idea of therapy and getting better and and all of that.
1: I actually understood what he was going through a lot. It made me think back to a Stephen King interview I saw where he explained that pet cemetery, the horror in pet cemetery is that a toddler dies. That is what makes everybody so upset. And mm-hmm. so when I think about that, that like at the end of the day, a baby dying is actually the most horrifying thing most of us can think about. I I understood what was going on here and how they were like ratcheting up everything. All the stakes went up so much higher right. in terms of things like not being able to turn to your spouse or not feeling comfortable in a support group. Again, for those listeners who don't know us very well, I have three special needs kiddos and the support groups had a time and place for me. You couldn't drag me back there now. I have no interest in sitting around and listening to people cry at this point in time in my life. I understand that there were some people who got things out of it and some people who didn't. And it's a very divisive kind of situation, honestly. Some people just it just feels worse to be there. For those people, I would encourage to keep looking for different support groups because there's different ones that have different sort of uh, vibes that, you know, are about moving on or about like, let's have a birthday cake for every dead baby's birthday. That would I couldn't stick around for at all. No. The not being able to turn to your spouse, again, in the special needs community, I think Steph and I can speak to that. I don't know if Sheila, if you can. But for us, there's times when we absolutely cannot talk to our spouse anymore. The The feelings are too raw about whatever's going on and they are no longer a comfort to us. We have to go outside of our own little tiny circle and find other people to talk to about this not necessarily support group setting, but like in a more casual, organic way, we call that circling out. Like if you just keep talking about your problems within the inner inner circle, you combust. So you have to go like several layers out and find other people, whether it's a therapist or even a stranger sometimes can be better um, because it's too much. You can't look into that other person's eyes and see their pain and get any comfort yourself when you're trying to talk about it. Steph,
3: do you have experience with that? There's times that you can turn to the person that you experienced this with and then other times that you can't. And I think that both of their reactions were valid. Like um, he said that Dessa turned into a zombie and just like shut down, which I totally get. And he was angry, which I think is also valid. I don't know. I feel like they couldn't turn to each other at that point. I totally get his anger. I just it is, you know, I felt like people are just trying to help him and and just saying and doing all the wrong things for him and it just made him more angry and shut down so if we're in 1990 and this probably happened what in 80 something that's like 10 years i mean were there other options for him to express himself or to seek counseling or was that just not going to happen because he was a big strong man or you know what I mean? Yeah,
0: I, I think this is I think this is pre-woke culture right. where, you know, it was okay to cry if you were a big strong man kind of thing, especially with a ray at home right. who probably doesn't want to uh, see his son have any uh kind of emotion.
3: Right. So I just felt like he he didn't have like an outlet that was going to work for him.
0: I think his anger was justified. I think I was more surprised at the vitriol he had on the support groups only because they seemed to be helping Dessa So I totally get not, and I don't think I would be a support group person either. That's not really my jam. But like calling it like the Dead Babies Club seemed so extreme. Like that seemed like a real slap in the face to his wife, and and I get, and even the estrangement, her becoming a zombie, like them drifting apart because they can't face each other. That totally makes sense to me, and seems like the right organic way that that would happen. But I think it was just another sign for me, maybe, and maybe I'm reading into this. Of there's a real selfish nature to Dominic, probably born of his life experiences and being his brother's keeper to that extent. But this whole scene, his righteous anger seemed tempered by a very selfish undercurrent that turned me off a bit.
2: I just don't think, he, like I, I mean, I said this before, I just don't think he's ever allowed himself to to deal with emotion. So his only way to deal with it is to shut down. So he's very much of a stone wall when it comes to dealing with everything everything. So we saw that with the therapist, we saw that with the social worker, and then even with his own wife. And, you know, Caroline, to your your question earlier, when you're in that swirl of emotion and grief and, and whatever else is going on, you know, whatever your situation is, but, you know, relating it to this, when you look at the other person, they're almost the mirror image of what you're going through. So you do have to, you know, to what Dessa did, you do have to go outside of your own four walls in order to to move that needle anywhere. Because if you're just staring back at the other person who's in the same pit of despair, as same as you, you're not moving anywhere. So, you know, dealing with whatever it is in life, sometimes you do have to get a different perspective. And even if you don't agree with it, you still have to like support your partner. And to call it the dead babies club was just like, it was just so cringeworthy. I just couldn't imagine being able to, look at somebody who felt that that was what that was you know so I'm, i'm hoping that he never said those words out loud to his wife and that was just his own internal dialogue but just watching their implosion you just knew that it was inevitable
0: Let's talk about the shitty things or inappropriate things people say to people who are grieving, whether it be a a death of a a child or a loved one or any kind of thing in the form of Gene Constantine, his now former father-in-law, when he tells them these things happen and then suggests that they just get pregnant again to replace the baby. I know personally have experienced the sentiments like, well, these things happen. You'll feel better with time over the death of a loved one, but the idea of get pregnant to cover your problems. What did you think of that as just a general experience of what people say during uh, funeral times?
1: I would say that people say inappropriate things a lot. (laughs) Um, You know, definitely even outside of funeral times, especially when it comes to those really difficult decisions that you're having to make. So for in my case, I had the twins at 23 weeks. Up until that point, though, I was on bed rest for two weeks. And so there was this weird, elongated decision-making time where the law says you do not resuscitate before 23 weeks, actually 24 weeks. So if they were born, I would have to tell them to resuscitate. And so the doctors came in and said, look, just let them die and we'll 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 do fertility treatment. We'll get you pregnant again right away. And you just start a clean slate. And it's no big deal. And that will be much, much better than doing anything else. Now, whether that's good pragmatic advice, medically speaking, I mean, maybe it is if you get if you just can take all the emotion out of it. But you can't take the emotion out of it when you're talking about life and death decisions for your children. You can't. And so for me, I I understand what the dad was saying, the father in law was saying. And he's coming from a time when people had like 10 kids with the idea that like eight survive, you know. And so for me, I'm like, I get it. But, I mean, we also went through a whole part where people didn't know whether to congratulate us when we had the girls or say they're sorry or what because they were so early. People just didn't know what to say or what to, what to react. I think that the best things people ever did, I should say, were not words, but just actions. Uh, I had help putting up Christmas decorations outside while I was still in the hospital, and I came home and the house was decorated, and I felt like that was amazing. But people didn't, like, harass me, like, what can I do, what can I do? They just... Did stuff. They just brought dinner over or they just, you know, helped out in different ways that they could. The actions to me were more important than the words. The words were always clumsy every time.
3: Who knows what to say at a funeral or the loss of a loved one? Like, I never know what to say. I've, I'm like just so awkward in those situations. I usually tend just to stay quiet, you know, because I feel like no matter what I say, it's going to be the wrong thing. I, I don't know. I really hate the idea of like people telling them just to have another baby, it'll be fine. I just feel like there's a lot of people in this circle of motherhood that have lost a pregnancy. Um, I even know a few moms who've lost infants. You can't make it better and you can't say anything right. And he's probably going to be angry no matter what anybody said. So they're all going to be the wrong thing to say, I think. In our twin community, just so you guys know and our listeners know,
1: it's not actually very uncommon to lose one of the twins. Yeah. Um, It happens. And so we have had situations where people join when they're pregnant and then now one twin survived. And then what? Are they in the twin club as far as everyone's concerned or not? I mean, it gets really dicey. Everyone, of course, just opens arms and say, of course, you know, if you're comfortable here, stay here. Um, If you're not. Because it brings up too much bad feelings for you, then don't. But especially with multiples, I think that, mm-hmm. you know, mortality rates are much higher and things are much more fragile health wise and things happen. So it does happen. Sheila, have you experienced any of this? Not in such a horrific way, but my husband and I struggled with infertility and
2: I was going for a ton of treatments and things like that. And you know, people we were married for eleven years before my was born so we were married for 10 years before you know when i got pregnant and but people were asking they were like oh you know are you guys gonna have kids and yeah yeah, you gotta my journey was four years to conceive do you know how much stuff people say in four years when you're already on hormonal treatments and things like that so you're already not in your right you know mindset mind frame and then you add you know all these hormones on top of it and you know god love my husband he was so good about it like because i was a little more fragile when it came to like those kinds of questions, because, you know, I was hyped up on all these hormones. And he would kind of try to break the, the tension of the moment before the waterworks would start. And he'd be like, oh, yeah, you know, she can't. And then people would be like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. He's like, yeah, she would look at me and just can't, you know, trying to make a joke out of it. And, you know, um, husbands.
3: yeah, so, you know, he gets
2: husband of the year award for that. But people don't think beyond what they're saying to think about what is going to impact the person who's receiving it, like, because you don't know, like, what they're dealing with, you don't necessarily know. But yeah, I mean, and then, you know, you know, when you are pregnant, like the horrible things that people say, when they mean it, you know, in a in a not mean way, kind of way, you know, it's like, Oh, you're, are you having? I was asked, Are you having twins? I'm like, Nope, that's just one. You know, I'm just just that big. Thank you. We've all been in that situation. You're like, thanks um, for that
1: comment. (laughs) I mean,
2: I gave birth to one baby that is the equivalent of some twins, you know. But yeah, no, people, people say the most horrific things. And then since that experience, my son is six, almost seven now. Since that experience, it has actually changed how I approach people when I talk to them about, you know, sensitive situations. So I tend to be more like Steph and stay on the quieter side. And I tend to be the person who does more action as opposed to saying things. So I will be the person that turns up with dinner or, you know, turns up with flowers or, you know, says, hey, I'm going to go babysit the kids. You go to the mall or go get your nails done. That tends to be more my speed now.
1: Hey, Mike, what did you think about the idea of using the life insurance money from the baby to go on a trip? Do you think that that was okay? Or was it in bad taste? Or what do you think?
0: I personally think it's in bad taste, but I also see why someone would suggest it. And I can see where Dessa would want to do it something cathartic and, and maybe bring them back together again. It seems like the kind of thing one spouse may suggest to another, knowing that they're drifting infinitely apart from each other. But I think I probably would have come down on Dominic's side there. That It seems a little, a little too much. Uh, and I love cruises. I mean, I, I'm very much on record. I'm a big cruise guy, especially to the Mediterranean. That sounds fantastic. Greece, Sicily, I'm all about that. But oof, yeah, that didn't really work for me. I was going to ask you guys about that. Because Dominic says that's what Dessa needed to do. I had other plans, but did we learn in this sequence what his other plans for getting over it were while she was yes. off on her cruise?
1: He I went it. to the urologist. He got yes. a vasectomy. Yeah, which is
2: oh yeah,
0: that's so right. I think I was okay. taking it. Yeah. Uh, well, wait, well, hold I, on. So,
3: what did you think of that stuff? I thought it was awful. I was shocked to see him outside the urologist's office if you're actively having children with your spouse, like you don't go do that behind their back.
2: That's the mark of a very twisted person. There's someone in my husband's family who did that. They had a child and he never wanted children. And then as soon as they had their child, he went and got a vasectomy, never told his wife. And they tried for years to have kids. She thought that. After the first baby, she thought there was something seriously wrong and and they divorced and things like that. Um, And she found out when her son was around 35 years old through like a like around the way kind of family conversation. And they were like, oh, did you know that, you know, he got a vasectomy and she was like, wait, what? And obviously that was the end of that family dinner. Yeah. So, I mean, I just think it's the mark of a really twisted person who would do something like that.
0: Or is it another sign of him being super selfish? I mean, I think there's a real narrative building here that Dominic is Dominic first.
1: I agree with you on that. And also, like, in a, if you you could do the dots to uh, cutting off your hand, you know, it's a very like uh, you're doing something because you think you're doing it for some greater good. But like you're actually being a freak right now and should stop, you know, stop acting like that.
0: I was impressed that he had the self-reflection because he doesn't seem like someone who who can really do a lot of good self-analyzing, that he realized the real reason he didn't want to take the trip. He was using the finance by death money as the outward excuse, but he was terrified of having another baby and the close quarters and the inevitability of of having sex and getting pregnant again. That was his real fear. And I was impressed that he had that realization, but that's something that that you then go talk to your spouse about. You don't go off when you're alone alone. And uh, go get your snip, your, 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 your (laughs) man tubes tied. (laughs) Yeah. I was trying to, I was trying to think of a good Uh, euphemism for vasectomy.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that we can all agree that that marriage was doomed because you can't go behind your spouse back and and change the, the child plan like that. You cannot do stuff like that. We have heard and seen women who take birth control pills. I gosh, Mike, that was on another show. Oh my god, what was it with Anna Paquin? Remember she was like taking pills but it, her, and her, and her and her husband were like trying to get pregnant but she was like actively taking the pill?
0: Oh, uh, Flack.
1: Yeah. And 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 it was like a whole thing of like she knew very well she was preventing them from getting pregnant but you know, just That's not a permanent now you're Situation, right. It's not like permanent. That, not permanent. But I mean, is not better, Behind your spouse's back, I guess. Your partner's back, right? Yeah. Keep like changing the life plan behind your spouse's back. Is that acceptable? Well, also partner?
0: for anyone who ever struggled with fertility issues, continuing failing. I mean, I, I didn't have – We it took us about two years uh, to have Tom, but the idea of that – you're part of the problem of why you can't get pregnant and then to learn because your spouse was actively trying to stop you, either because they're taking birth control pills behind your back or they get a vasectomy and don't tell you about it. It's such like a betrayal of we're in this together.
1: It's abusive, man. It's, It's a cruel thing to do to somebody else for sure.
0: Does this flashback scene help you understand... Dominic better? Was this useful to have in this episode? Uh, Did we need this long, depressing scene narratively to understand the better story and his relationship with Thomas? Or was this just good storytelling? and was interesting narratively, and, and you liked it?
1: There were a couple of parts to it that I thought I got out of it. I mean, I thought it was important to see Thomas take it and twist the death of the baby into something that it was because of him and this really much larger delusion that he had going on. That part of it. It helped me to when he was walking into Dr. Patel's office and the little girls in their little ballet costumes are like going by and he kind of like bumps into one and is like like recoiling away from the little girls in a way that's like he hasn't dealt with this. The death of his daughter in any way. So there were little nuggets there. I don't know that it had to be that long, but there was a lot that came out. Even the fact that Jean was his father in law, and then we see Jean Constantine's name in the used car lot, and we realize like all the relationships going on there. There was a lot that was layered into the story, but there were probably parts that could have been edited a bit.
2: To me, it really explained better the inability for him. for Dominic to be able to deal with his brother, to deal with his disease, to deal, you know, I'm just gonna say, I I think Dominic has his own challenge that maybe is not diagnosed. I don't know. There's definitely something there that's defective. I'm using that very cautiously because the vitriol that he has for the system, and I'm using air quotes, you know, while he's in Rosie O'Donnell's, Lisa Sheffer and uh, Dr. Patel's offices, he's just not able to cope with anything that they're telling him. And, and I have a feeling that some of the stuff was maybe stuff he heard for the first time from them. And some of the stuff was stuff he'd heard over and over again. But the extended scene really showed how damaged he is as a person. It doesn't give him, in my mind, like a license to be a dick the way that he is. And I'm, you know, trying to trying to be nice here. But it's also, it's it's throwing into sharp relief that he is in need of help himself and is not self-aware or self-reflective, as Mike said, to realize that he is headed down a very dangerous path for himself as well.
0: He seems pretty righteous, actually, about who he is, what his role in the world is. He really walks about in a way where his shit doesn't stink. And it's a it's a bit off-putting. You would think with someone with his background and upbringing and everything he's been through and all he has seen, you would think he would be a little more humble. And that seems to be s- sort of lacking from his personality. I would agree with
2: that.
3: For me, it just helped me have another layer of like feeling sorry for him and sort of understanding this like level of anger that he has built up. And I agree with you, Sheila, in him in saying that he just hasn't dealt with any of this and also needs help himself. Like I feel like that this is the episode where I saw that, especially in the conversation with Dr. Patel, like he needs to be there just as much as Thomas does. Like he needs to deal with all this stuff. And so I felt a little sorry for him, sad for him, but also sort of understand why he's just so pissed off all the time. Like, life has literally kicked him in the balls this episode. (laughs) So, Mm. that was also, like, another layer of that. Like, man, this guy just cannot catch a break.
0: But also, good on Mark Ruffalo's balls. Uh, I mean, swollen, but, you know, you go, boy. That that was, you know, an interesting Polaroid shot to get there. I was was not expecting that.
2: It was not just one. It was multiple. Right? Yikes.
0: Uh, yeah. And then the bruising, really, I, it was one of those kind of where a guy just crosses his legs and goes,
1: ooh. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Did not like that. Were were right. I'm a girl think, and I
1: was doing that. <laughs> were we supposed to think that he and Joy had had sex earlier and then he was getting in the shower because yeah. I'm having big old eyes like, what? Because <laughs> he was like, they were like in bed together, no? And then he's yeah. like, gets in the shower and he's like, take a look at this. I was like, you didn't notice that was going on right next door. <laughs>
0: Well, yeah. I don't that she kisses him awake, like standing over him, though, mm, right? I, 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 I didn't so. get that. They, I didn't get that they had had sex. I think in no, that state that that would have been difficult for oh, him to do I without think crying.
1: Impossible! Good lord! When we actually saw them, I was like, no.
0: I also don't know that I would call my wife, girlfriend, or anything in there and be like, look at my balls, look at that. <laughs> That doesn't look right. You wouldn't. You know?
1: Oh man, I don't. I don't, think, I oh, don't think
0: so. I think I would. I think I would nurse I'm that like pain privately. Like,
1: look over here. Look at this mess. What do you think this rash is? <laughs>
2: well, <laughs> like, like you're lady. the only
1: other person that sees it as much as I do. So you know, have a look. Yeah, I need some. I need
3: some analytical advice <laughs> here. I need some, per- I need here. some
1: perspective here. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, I get you.
0: I don't know. I, I wouldn't, I, I don't know that I object to swelling. So Sheila mentioned it. And, and I think it was, a, I think it was another important part of this episode was Dominic versus the system. I'd like to take it there because this was a different version of the system that we saw today. You know, last episode, it ends with the, the security guards restraining and dragging Thomas away. It ends up with Dominic getting beat down by the guards, you know, in the nighttime shifty transfer today, or in this episode, we, we meet Lisa Sheffer. She's a social worker played by Rosie O'Donnell at Hatch Facility. We meet Dr. Patel, Thomas's new doctor. What did you guys think of overall with, with Dominic's experience with the system, the initials, especially the Rosie O'Donnell scene? Have you guys had experiences like this dealing with people who talk in acronyms and, and, and say things like 15-day paper?
3: Yes, for sure. It's Absolutely. so frustrating. I still identify with him being frustrated by this and already on the defensive and already just upset by what's going on, even though they're saying, I'm here to help you. I'm here to advocate for you. That is her job description. But most of the time, these people have so much on their plate. They have a lot to do. And you're just one of the people they're trying to help. But it doesn't always feel that way, especially when they talk to you in those terms that only mean something to them. Mm -hmm. And they sort of spout it all out quickly at you. I have. I feel like I have to record my sessions with these therapists and doctors when they're talking about my son because I just don't, you rattle it off so fast and I don't understand what you're saying. It's like you're nodding along going, okay, okay. mm -hmm," And then you like leave that conversation going, I'm not really sure what you said you're going to do.
1: Well, and I'll add on that. It's not necessarily that you didn't understand. It's that there's so much stuff going on. I feel like my head is flooded with, Emotion as well as trying to take in the information. So I know that you and I have been in similar situations where intelligence wise, we get it, but we haven't figured out what the impact of what they're saying yeah. is quite yet. And so you're trying to process and no doubt your kid is like coloring on the wall right. or screaming fooling and- around with something. <laughs> right. Kicking the wall. You're like, I can't hear the information I'm supposed to be hearing right now. Um, so it, it is complicated for us. I've always had the policy of taking another person with me because I can't hear. I can't hear what the doctor is saying or what that advocate is saying to me in the moment. Taping it is another good mm-hmm. way of doing that. Um, I have tape a call on my phone, which I turn on anytime when I'm speaking to anybody in that realm because I can't hear it when it's happening. It's almost like that blood pressure feeling when like mm-hmm. your head fills with blood. And it's like I can't hear you anymore. <laughs> um, so it gets to be too much. I thought that the way that Lisa spoke with him was very realistic, and I, and I actually appreciated it because she was one of those few people who tried to walk the line of being careful in the amount of information she doled out, however, not indulging the fantasy of, yeah, I'm sure he will get out in 15 days. I'm sure that won't be a problem because those people are equally our enemies in the system. When she says... That may or may not happen in 15 days, that may or may not be the truth that he will get out in 15 days. We'll have to, you know, assess and figure it out. That is actually more helpful to me than the person who says, I'm sure they'll be out in 15 days and the 15th day comes and it doesn't happen and your heart just feels just stomped on. Those people to me are worse
0: she had a lot of good information to say and i think she told him and said a lot of things to him that he needed to hear but there was a monotone clinical aspect about her speech to him that i found infuriating on his behalf you know it, mm-hmm. when you're when someone is telling you that they're your advocate for you and your brother but there's like no passion in in her voice at all either from Dominic's point of view, I could see where that's frustrating. One, you're talking to me in your jargon and your acronyms that I don't understand and and it's, it's I'm not absorbing any of that. But then also, I don't believe you that you're here because you're you're not showing any signs that you are sharing my like righteous outrage about being taken to this other facility in the middle of the night. Which is sad because I think she was actually telling him good things and I really enjoyed the part where he asks what what the serious crime was she makes the point to tell him that he hurt himself that thomas hurt himself and that he counts
2: just as you were talking i just looked to my note and where i wrote this down and i felt that her i so saw lisa sheffer and dr patel were both compassionate and condescending at the same time like in the same breath, not at the same time, but like within the same breath. So like, Mike, what you touched on, that monotone, that very clinical tone that she had with him. And she was like, hey, 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 you know, I'm not here to indulge that kind of, you know, language and things like that. You know, the very Rosie O'Donnell kind of you know, persona coming out. But I felt that, you know, she was kind of condescending to him because I think that she was seeing that, you know, she's like, well, maybe this is someone who also needs to be sitting on a couch once in a while. And then I also felt the same way with Dr. Patel. Like, I, you know, there was kind it's a bit extreme. But, um, you know, when she said that, you know, you're the control group for Thomas, like she was looking at him like hungrily, like you could be research.
1: I do agree with you. that so hardcore because the way that her eyes looked at him, yes. when she knew very well what was going to be on that tape. And she's like, let me play this for you. And then the way that she says that, like, and she hits the tape and she's just like. Almost mockingly smiling at him, like there is an eagerness
2: in her eyes that I've only seen in like, you know, like the eyes of like a Nazi, you know, genetic doctor. Mm -hmm. You know? It was just (laughs) it was so horrific to me. Like that that one line that she said that you're the control group, and I was just like, and this is why he hates the system.
1: Like you're just
2: as bad as the guy who need him in the balls.
1: It's a different maze that has to be gone through, you know, not only the physical, you know, pulling and pushing to try to get to your brother. How bad did it feel, you guys, when he said, when she said, oh, you're not going to get to see him
0: today?
2: Right. Like that was just like yanking the rug out from under him. That's already, you know, he's already three quarters of the way down to the ground. Let's just like push him the the rest of the quarter way down.
0: You know, I wrote wrote my notes that Lisa Sheffer was a cold dose of reality. She was like a cold shower of reality for Dominic. And when she says you're not going to get to see him today, that was like a doozy. Like that really hit him. I don't think it had entered his mind at any point. Since when he was getting his balls beat in the night before that he wouldn't get this resolved today he was steadfast that he was leaving there with his brother in tow it was shocking for him to hear that and I, I think I think it was acted really well though too
3: I do too like I went into that meeting more on the side of Dominic like being upset and this isn't right and we need to get Thomas out of here and I think that Lisa Sheffer did a good job of speaking the truth to him she did it like you said, just sort of nonchalantly or matter-of-factly. Is that a word? Matter-of-factly? Okay. <laughs> I said it. It's a it. phrase. It even, in
0: the northeast, right. that's a, even in the Northeast, that's a phrase. I'll allow much, it.
3: So. Okay, Do you guys okay. understand those words? Yeah. <laughs> it just <laughs> didn't make sense when I said it. But I, I felt the same way. Like, I didn't really understand what Thomas's crime was. I was confused because he only hurt himself. And so when she said that, like, he hurt himself and he counts too. I was like, oh, yeah, like, you're right. Like, that is yeah. bad. And then she's saying, well, we have to go to the review board. And he's like, who are these people? Like, who are you talking about? Like, that's how I felt. Like, who's in charge here? Who's making the decisions? Like, why can't I have a say in it? Crime wise, Mike, do you have any like two cents into this
1: as to like, what would you classify this as?
0: She, well, she made a good point that he did do it to himself, and that's why he is under lock and key in a in a maximum security psych ward.
1: But is there? There's no law that says I can't hurt myself. I mean, if I commit suicide, I didn't break a law. I mean, no one no one is brought up in charges. Like my my fictitious self is not brought up in charges for manslaughter of myself. I I think that it's being in a public place with yeah. the well, cleaver, uh, with the children in the library. Yeah, there there are versions. Stuff.
0: There are versions of assault and menacing uh, that all involve brandishing a weapon in a public place with an intent to do harm. And I don't know for a fact, I, I would have to I would have to look, but I, I think him hurting himself may actually be a criminal offense. But certainly he's going to be, he's certainly uh, endangering the welfare of children. He's going to be charged with menacing. He's going to be charged with possibly assault, depending on how that law is written in that state. Assault is written differently, depending on the places. Yeah. So he's definitely facing, you know, a lot of things, but someone with a history of mental illness, who given a chance to go to a public place, and the thing he does is take out a giant cleaver and hacks off his arm in in sight of children and, and other people. He could probably be sued also personally, you know, for, you know, emotional infliction of harm. You know, if any of those parents of those kids wanted to sue him and his family, you know, he's probably facing that too. But I did like the statement that he counts also, because like Steph, I hadn't really thought about that either. And obviously, Dominic had not thought about Thomas himself being in within the harm done.
1: Sheila, what do you think about that? Is doing harm to yourself? Is it under the category of, well, he matters too, and he's a person too? And maybe especially with the schizophrenic diagnosis, does it matter if you have that sort of multiple people sort of feeling? That you hurting yourself is actually I mean, that's a complicated thought. But do you guys get where I'm going with that?
2: I work in healthcare and for sixteen of my eighteen years in healthcare I worked in a hospital. And, you know, part of doing your due diligence is is, you know, sort of like taking care of the rest of the, the hospital. So while I worked in sort of operations and, and not directly in patient care, we were charged with making sure that like from a fresh eyes perspective, like if you go to a different floor and you would make sure that they're compliant with like different like safety standards and patient care standards and things like that. So in someone's infinite wisdom, they assigned me to psych floors <laughs> and, you know, having to to go to these psych floors and see sort of, you know, the, the mental illness that, you know, the, you know, would hospitalize some of these people on display, the people who did the most damage did the most damage to themselves. And then the problem is, is then that it would then incite others to do violence, which is actually touched on in this episode, when he's talking about the incident that happened with Dr. Patel, when she tells him that, you know, Thomas flipped the table, he wasn't trying to hurt anybody else. But his activity flipped some people's lunches and fruit cups and, and it just, you know, a melee ensued is what we were told. So yes, there is this notion that the self matters and in talking to, in my career and working with different areas and whatnot, process improvement was a big thing. So I, you know, in my career, so I had to, you know, work with people from all different, you know, types of backgrounds and things like that. And the most interesting to me to work with were the psych units, because there is all of this attention on the self. And if the self is well, the self is not harming itself then it has a chance to heal so that the self matters and whether or not he committed a crime per se you know is up for discussion like what happens if he like threw the knife and it stabbed somebody you know there is that notion that there is a public harm even though he did this to himself and that's what i was thinking when i said that there's some stuff that that dominic heard in the system's office that day was the first time he'd heard it so the crime to me was the first time he'd heard the damage to the self is something that was actually a crime. Whereas the other stuff about Thomas's disease was stuff that he'd already heard before and knew that they had no good answer for.
0: And just to piggyback on that, I think when Lisa says that he committed a serious crime, I I don't believe Thomas has actually been arrested. I think she was saying serious crime insofar as support for why he would be committed. Because remember, after the 15-day hold for evaluation, it goes before the faceless review board. And one of the options from there is that he gets long-term committed for a year, and then even after that year, it goes on. That That's the result of what he did. The mental, into, mental instability that he exhibited in public is what is possibly landing him in long-term commitment facility. There were no handcuffs involved here from a, from a, an arrest standpoint. I think they restrained him with handcuffs, but he wasn't being like put in the criminal system. I think she was saying crime more as far as why he would be deemed unfit to be out in like a minimum home or, or some kind of facility like that as a justification why he would need to be committed. So the other aspect of the system in this episode was when he goes to meet Dr. Patel, played by the fantastic Archie Punjabi. She's a great character actress on a lot of different shows, The Good Wife, uh, Blacklist. She's, she's always really enjoyable. And here... She's playing Thomas's new doctor and maybe Dominic's new doctor, too. I think we've already hit on it a little bit. But, uh, Steph, what was your take on Dr. Patel insofar as her interest in Dominic?
3: I thought it was a little disturbing. Like, she's interested in him because he's the control group for Thomas is just bizarre. You can't have a control group of one, can you? (laughs) But I I, I don't know. I think that she was trying to help him in a way by talking about his emotions and asking questions about how he felt about it. I thought that he was going there to discuss Thomas and her take on what's going on with him, but it didn't really seem like she was interested in that. Why did she play him that tape? Like what was the end goal in that? Just to see his reaction and or to let him know where Thomas was at? I thought we were there to discuss like what was currently going on with Thomas, like is he okay? Is he freaking out? You know,
1: I think that's a super good question. What was the point of the recorded therapy session sharing with Dominic? What do you guys think about that?
0: I, I think she went in there with an ulterior motive. I think she played the tape partially because she wanted to see his reactions to Thomas's statements as a litmus test of veracity to get an indication of what Thomas is saying insofar as it's true. Because he's saying things that are definitely within the realm of possibility of an abuse victim, but he's also, you know, he has this paranoia, schizophrenia, so you have to also question it. But I think she definitely went in there looking at him like a piece of meat as a future client goes. I think she definitely had an ulterior motive uh, walking into that room.
1: Ethically, there's no way Dominic could be her client, right? Given that she has the brother and there's this, the, the, this whole other relationship between them i thought you cannot do that like they have she
2: could because she's not related to them but laws are different in every state but i, I a good therapist should recuse herself because they do treat but she doesn't necessarily have to
1: well i mean but. even just to the point of like getting insight into unless home visits or evaluating the family member of, of the caretaker who is going to be you know the person would be released to or something is part of the process I feel like that, it, that that just like muddies her ability to judge Thomas and whether or not I'm, I'm sure she has a say and whether or not he stays in Hatch. And so I just felt like like ethically, whether it's explicit in the rules, it felt like she should not be speaking to Dominic in the same way.
0: I thought it was inappropriate for her to say that two men are lost in the woods and I may not be able to reach one or rescue one. But I see one that I may be able to help because he may be calling to me. The fuck, lady? What are you, you, Robert Frost? Uh, Jesus!
1: How about Mike? I mean, you're a man. How about the fact that she doesn't call the men; she calls them little boys. There's little boys lost in the woods.
0: For sure, for sure. I mean, I, listen. Therapists have a lot of power over patients, especially when you go to someone and you are in a vulnerable state, like Dominic is undeniably in. She was giving all the signs of a sort of grooming. That if she wasn't a the therapist and this was on the street, and and if she was a man. You would say that she was grooming him for some kind of illicit behavior, kind of putting him in this infantile role, really inappropriate kind of start to finish.
1: I agree, especially those parts, too, when she would inject, she would say, and there you go again, questioning my ethics. She said it like two times that I was like, I'm questioning your ethics.
0: I want to touch on something that that Steph brought up too the the idea of Dominic being the control group for Thomas as the quote unquote healthy version of him the one without this mental illness affliction as parents of twins because I know you guys are is that a fair way to look at twins I mean yes twi- even if you have identical twins they look alike but they're separate people right, right. isn't that the whole idea is that so we're
1: both like yes they are not. indeed separate people not
0: okay. <laughs> I yeah, mean, it, 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 it seemed completely fucked up to say that you are a mirror image of yeah. your other person. I
1: mean, I get it from like talking from like a scientific point of view, like DNA wise. Yeah, OK, I get it in some point. But the fact that they are absolutely two different people, a lot of people in the public don't get that, though. They will look at boy girl twins and ask you if they're identical all the time. I mean, come on, guys. Like people really don't (laughs) understand twins. And I know that this is a little different, but this is being played to an audience. Mm -hmm. So in that regard, some of this stuff has to be brought to the audience's attention. Like, hey, guys, that's not really a thing. What do you think, Steph? I mean, could you really sit down with one of your twins and then accurately
3: judge what the other one's like? Absolutely not. I mean, mine are boy girl, so they're very obviously different people, but... I am close friends with two of the ladies in the twin mom group who have identical twin girls that I physically cannot tell them apart unless they are side by side. And I am looking at them in the eyes and I go that freckle. Yeah. Oh, you have the freckle. Okay, you're so and so. But to the mothers, when I say, how do you tell them apart? She's like, they are so different. How can you not tell them apart? Like to her, it's night and day these are her children she knows them she knows their personalities are different their likes and dislikes are different everything about them is different but to us I cannot tell them apart so it's just funny to me how she um the mom is just like they are absolutely two different people how can you not see that and even of a mom of twins I'm like I can't tell them apart they look exactly the same So just because someone looks the same or is a twin has nothing to do with whether they're similar or not.
1: Not in their actual personality or or even necessarily choice making. Like I really don't feel that's the same. One of the things that they pointed out that is important is that they were not treated identically. And in the nature nurture world of everything... They yeah. were not treated identically. So he's not a control group right from go. And Patel would know that if she just like listened because previous to even really saying that they were saying Thomas says he got hit more and it was tre- He was treated more harshly by the stepdad. Then why in the world would you consider that a control group identical situation? No, I mean, they were obviously raised in a different way. They were being told different things. They're not going to turn out the same. The whole concept of it is silly.
0: Isn't it even more egregious? Because yes, that is a public perception that even persists today. Identical twins, you know, they look alike, they talk alike, sometimes they even sound, you know, but a doctor thinking that way and talking that way, it seems beyond the pale egregious. But I wanted to touch on something you just said, Caroline, because the nature nurture thing gets brought up here. Because Dominic does not want to delve into family secrets. He is very over this part of the conversation. He specifically says what is wrong with Thomas is genetic and has nothing to do with our upbringing. And for that reason, doesn't think it's useful to go into the family secrets, as it were, of of their going on. But how can it not be? I I mean, maybe the baseline schizophrenia is genetic, but how it has affected Thomas over 40 years is clearly linked to his upbringing. No?
2: Yes, you have a genetic predisposition to it, but how bad you get or, or before you get treatment is definitely a reflection on your home environment and how you were raised, 100%.
1: There's so many parts to it, too, that have to do with, you know, the family dynamic just generally and what part you play. I mean, I'm a middle kid. I know I play a different part than the baby and I understand that stuff. So for them, I feel like everything was very different about their upbringing. He seemed very close to his mom in a lot of ways. Ray seems like, I mean, for God's sake, we know he thought he could like beat the challenges out of Thomas. And we all know that's not true. So Patel just reads very off to me, even in the smallest of moments in the highlighting the you're judging. You're 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 questioning my ethics like I'm forever going to be questioning your ethics, woman.
2: Yeah, she just creeped me out from, you know, the word go.
0: There was a Michael Keaton movie in the late 80s, I think came out in 89 called Dream Team where Michael Keaton and several other people are patients uh, in a psychiatric hospital. And one of them, I think it's Christopher Lloyd, has a habit of impersonating a therapist and is very convincing in the role and goes about and constantly is talking to people as patients and they have no idea that he's not really a therapist. That was a big vibe I was getting from Dr. Patel here. Like, I'd like to see your diploma and some references from people who actually know you as a actual doctor. And that you are not just someone on the ward who has stolen a coat because she had a lot of questionable things going on here. But I, I wanted to ask you, he says something about the straight jacket of medication. Now, we all have kids. All of our kids have been sick, some, some more severely than others. you know. And as adults also, we're also prescribed things when something is wrong with us. Did the idea of a straight jacket of medication ring true to you guys as a thing that happens to people in this country that that we can we could put a pill to solve any of our problems?
3: It hit me when he said that. It it just sort of um, reacted within me. You know, it seems like that's a road they've been down before. You know, he's he's said things about that before like, "Well, we've tried all the different medications and he knows about the medications. He named off a few and it seems like I I'm, I'm not familiar with much medication and what it does or how it affects people, but it seems like he's saying like the medication just sort of turns him into somebody he's not. It makes him like a zombie or whatever the effect is like that's not necessarily a good thing, you know, just maybe because it cuts down on episodes or lashing out or whatever doesn't mean it's effective or helpful in what it does do. So, I mean, that's I feel like that's a huge debate. I know it comes up a lot with the whole discussion around ADHD and things like that, like the effect that the medication has on the person. Like, do you want them to be able to sit still and pay attention or do you want them to be themselves or or can that be both? Or, You know, I think that each person has a different experience with it, but I feel like that's a huge debate and a big problem, especially if they've already been there. If they've already tried that with Thomas and they've been down that road and he's like, no, I mean, you're just going to make him a zombie and it's just gonna, that's not necessarily a solution. I identify with him being upset about that or having a very strong opinion about that.
2: My son has ADHD. So this has been a a struggle that, uh, you know, we've gone through, um, you know, do we medicate? Do we not medicate? We don't want him to necessarily become that zombie, you know, that, uh, you know, is so often thought of. So yeah, it is a fine dance to find the right treatment for whatever it is that, you know, you're dealing with, because that was my one thing is like when when he was diagnosed with this, I'm like, well, he's not going to go on something that is going to turn him into a zombie. Those were my exact verbatim words. And, you know, so we've had to go through a couple of iterations to to get the right course of treatment. And, and he is medicated, you know, so that this way he can sit still, but he's still himself, right? So he can sit still enough to learn. You know, it's funny, because one day in the early part of the school year, I forgotten to <laughs> To give him his medication, going to school. And by lunchtime, I got an email from the teacher as I was calling her to say, I'm so sorry, I forgot to give him his medication. She was like, It was like, you know, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde had swapped places. She goes, He was a completely different kid. He was just like bouncing off the walls. You know, there's another Mark Ruffalo movie called Dark Waters, and, uh, you know, it's about DuPont. And, you know, there is a certain level of better living through chemistry but i think when it does come to the psychiatric realm there is a tendency to overprescribe and i'm just being very cautious here you know so i do think there is that tendency to overprescribe but there is a, a necess- you know a necessity to be able to live a life that is fruitful, you know? So there is some line that needs to be walked when it comes
1: to that. I agree with you, Sheila. I My kiddos um, ha- take different medications and it has been such a balancing act of this seems to do good in these situations and this one seems to be okay here, but no, that one seems like too much. And and you're right, there are certain doctors who they are so quick to prescribe. That is the only thing they want to do. We've always paired any medication along with actual therapy using, you know, behavioral therapy using all different types of options. I appreciated when Dominic said, "When can we start teaching him some self-management?" That's a huge thing that we do too through both therapeutic ways but then even things like breathing techniques and more holistic ways. I think it's a total package when it comes to that and it really makes me sad when people just rely on the medication and they aren't following through on the rest of the things that can help the person. Handle things when it gets dicey with the medication, especially side effects. That's a huge, huge part of this. For our son, he gained a lot of weight having to do with the one, and now he has like a whole complex about being overweight and am I fat and all that stuff. And it's like, oh my God, you know, we're trying to give you this medicine for anxiety, and now we're creating a different, you know, thing for you to be anxious about. It's such a difficult challenge. Thankfully, however, I feel like I'm in control of those choices. And I can work with my doctor in a situation like this where Dominic has no idea what they're going to give Thomas and when and how much. This would be so difficult. And Thomas doesn't seem to have a voice in it at all. As much as they keep talking about how Thomas is a person and he matters, I haven't heard a whole lot within this institutional jargon between Patel and Lisa where they really talk about what Thomas wants.
0: No, they treat him very much like you would treat like an infant or, or someone who is beyond the capacity of deciding for themselves. Much the way that Dominic, though he personally was against it, allowed Thomas to not have his hand reattached, he gave him that agency. No one else is willing to treat Thomas like an adult male who is 40 years old. Yes, he has paranoid schizophrenia, but I, I don't think that means that he's not without lucid moments. I mean, that whole conversation with Patel about being the boys lost in the woods, she's given up on Thomas already. She is not interested in treating Thomas. He is just an object that will be shuffled through medication and through the system, which from Dominic's point of view has to be so frustrating because he was saying the right things about, you know, he at Settle, he's a fixture there. He he is functional there. Let's teach him self-management. Let's try and make him better or as better as he can be. And that's just falling on deaf ears in this scene. That, that's that got to be so frustrating as a caregiver to hear. No one is going to help you.
1: I did want to make sure that we didn't skim past a subtle moment that meant a lot to me as a caregiver. The conversation that he has at the car lot with his friend, who I'm assuming is his ex-brother-in-law there. Mm-hmm. Um, that's Leo. Leo. Yeah. When he said, hey, you said five people could be on that list. Go ahead and put my name down. My heart was like, Leo, you are the friend every single caretaker wishes they had because you're not doing something for me in terms of like coming over and sitting with me. But the idea that you would go and take my shift to check in on my brother. Oh, my God. And moments later, you see Dominic in the car wiping the tears away because you guys, I cannot express to you the willingness to take a little bit of the responsibility off your shoulders (laughs) <laughs> there's no amount of casseroles <laughs> that could possibly you know, be equivalent. Especially when
0: you pair that scene together with last week where Dessa, of her own free will, went to visit Thomas in the hospital after the cleaving accident, even when Ray couldn't go see him. you know, Dessa and Leo, irrespective of their relationship with Dominic, seem very emotionally invested in the well-being of Thomas. And I like that. That made my heart feel very full They don't need to be that way. They're not related by blood or marriage anymore. And yet they still feel like they'll reach out and be there for him.
1: And it's that whole willingness to act, right, Sheila, that it's like he was actually willing to go to hatch a probably very intimidating, very scary place to go. And have that moment, be willing to stand in that truth with Thomas like that on behalf of Dominic. But also because, like you said, they, they, they honestly care. They genuinely care about Thomas.
0: Let's shift to the last thing I think that was important to take away from this episode. When we're listening to the tape, Thomas says several things. About his experience growing up with Ray, he accuses Ray of raping their mother and making them watch. He accuses of him of severe physical abuse. He accuses him of sodomy with a variety of objects. And Dominic, listening to this, fights back against some of them. Says they're exaggerations in other cases, and and in some of the cases, says you know no that happened. But I think this whole scene really calls into question the idea of the reliable narrator. And I think we're we were supposed to think that Dominic is a reliable narrator and Thomas is delusional. But I think there were some things in this episode that proved to us that maybe Dominic isn't a reliable narrator. What was your takeaway on that? Because I think that's going to be an important thing going forward as we learn about these two boys throughout their life.
1: I had a lot of question marks. I understand where he's coming from with the idea that every single thing on this tape has to be untrue because, you know, it's too much for Dominic to deal with, whether he's suppressing memories or whatever. However, going back to that bus where I said he was telling us in his voiceover that everyone was making fun of the situation, when in reality, we could see kids were hugging and being supportive. I feel like I'm going to continue to question and wonder about what he's really seeing. And I go back to the idea that Thomas has the ability to take in real information, whether it's reading or or his own life experiences, not everything he says can be false. I don't believe, just statistically, I don't believe. He wasn't diagnosed with being a pathological liar. So I do wonder who we're supposed to believe and how much we're supposed to believe them.
3: I'm still questioning Thomas in this a little bit more than I am Dominic, just because I think Thomas does have delusions. And so I agree that there's some truth to what he's saying and he is able to recall truthful information or say things that are true. But I think Thomas just has a very overstated or exaggerated memory of things, maybe. Or to him, those things are true. Like, the abuse is true. But maybe he has created a different narrative around that abuse for himself. So that was a huge question for me when he was talking about Ray on the tape was, is that true? Did he make that up? Like, if Dominic says it didn't happen, who do we believe in this situation? So I was definitely questioning that for myself whether to believe Thomas or to believe Dominic, but I'm still sort of leaning towards believing Dominic over Thomas and I think just seeing so much in Dominic's life just helped me to understand why he is where he is, why he's so angry at Thomas, why he's so just done, you know? That helped me in this episode just sort of identify with Dominic and why he is just like over it and angry and upset and and less empathetic towards Thomas. I feel like like he said it's been a long 40 years and this has been dragging him down forever. So I definitely needed that to sort of identify with Dominic a little bit more and see him as less of an asshole.
1: You know, given the amount of information that we have about various diagnosis, it would be really fascinating to see if in giving the background of Dominic what you just said, you now have a more clear understanding of where he's coming from. I know they've done plenty of shows where people have autism and they will explain, well, from my point of view, this is how it feels. Mm -hmm. I wonder with paranoid schizophrenia, if there's information out there or if there's a point of view out there that this show will choose to show or not, where any of how... A person with that diagnosis feels, or how they're perceiving the world, can be explained. I don't know if it can be. I don't know if there's if that's available to to us. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that that's something that is would be really interesting to get. Where is Thomas coming from?
3: Well, I called my sister, who like a week ago graduated with her second master's degree, practicing in psychology and therapy and counseling, and I asked her about this diagnosis, which. Very high level, we didn't have a very in-depth conversation, but my question to her was, is it possible that Thomas is just making all of this up and it's not true, or is there some truth to what he's saying? And she's like, well, obviously, you know, she can't as a therapist say, but she said to him, it is true. To him, that is what happened. And we know that abuse happened, so that is true. But to Thomas, he has created or understood that in a different way. And that is truth to him. Like, he's not lying about what Ray did. That's what happened to him in his mind. And that was literally like a five-minute conversation. So I don't know. It could go a lot of different ways if you really dove into it. But I just was asking her in general, is it possible he's just totally making that up?
2: Yeah, I don't think either one of them are very reliable when it comes to narration. Like, I always feel there's three versions of the truth. There's, you know, your version, my version, and then what actually happened. So I feel like Dominic has repressed possibly so much in his life because of what we've seen in this episode of what has gone on, that he is just not processing things. He does not deal with things. He just shuts down and just becomes in an emotional blank space. And then, you know, in terms of Thomas, delusions are funny things. You know, they, they, what Steph, what you just said, they're true to them. And there's no convincing a paranoid schizophrenic that their delusion is not true. You know, in my experience with paranoid schizophrenia, there is a nugget of truth somewhere in the delusion. And it it evolves and becomes its own entity and it becomes truth to that person. So is there some sort of anti-truth that Dominic is creating to maybe repress some memories? Make You know, because he was emphatic that... Nothing that Thomas said, you know, in the tape with Dr. Patel actually happened. It's possible that he's repressed some of these memories to the point that he doesn't even remember that they happened. Or is he exhibiting his own sort of symptoms of a disease, possibly, if he's saying that, you know, Thomas cut his lip on, or chipped his tooth, rather, on the sled? Is he creating his own delusion? Possibly. I don't know. I don't know if that's going there. It was a question mark when I was watching it. I was like, does he have his own diagnosis coming?
0: Yeah, that was kind of my takeaway too. I mean, I I think it's somewhere in the middle. I, I think Thomas is saying a lot of things that a version of it happened. I think it's very possible and very real possibility that things happened outside of Dominic being around also. You know, clearly Ray and Thomas had time together that Dominic was not there for. And he can't testify as to what happened because he wouldn't have those memories. And I think he also exhibits, uh, I think there's a lot of selfishness here. I think there's some narcissism here. And I think there's some repression here. So I don't think you can absolutely believe everything he's saying either. So I, I think the truth, the actual truth is probably somewhere down the middle. But like you guys have said, I agree that Thomas believes these things happen so fiercely is maybe the, the only point that matters. That... You know, whether his mother was actually raped or just beaten severely and in his mind that turned into rape. I don't know that for Thomas's point of view, you know, those semantics maybe don't make a difference and maybe they shouldn't make a difference how we feel about Thomas and and the treatment he gets and the things he's been through. I think we probably need to wrap it up there, but there is something that we should put on the docket again for next week. I think we need to keep thinking about the religious aspect here because it came up again a couple times in this therapy session we listened to. About Thomas and his call to God, or call from God, and being chosen, and referring to himself as Simon Peter. We touched on it last week and I think it's something that we need to keep an eye on because it's an odd thing to throw in the show if it's not going to go anywhere. So I don't know how you guys feel about that, but I think that's definitely something we should maybe uh, circle around to next week after we watch episode three.
1: That sounds good. I look forward to talking about that.
0: All right. So any last thoughts before we uh, say goodbye for this week?
1: Well, just quickly
2: in terms of like the psychology, the psychiatry of it, we're looking at this from a 2020 lens, whereas this is taking place in 1990. And the notion of like self-actualization and self-management and self, you know, setting your own goals for treatment and things like that, that is a relatively newer construct in terms of psychiatry. So it was more like just treat them, keep them happy, keep them from hurting themselves, keeping them, you know, from hurting others. There was sort of a decline in the use of restraints and things like that, you know, those rubber rooms, they, you know, tried to, you know, use other tactics. And that's kind of where like the rise of medicine really came from is that they wanted to start having these patients manage themselves as opposed to, you know, just being locked In a rubber room for the rest of their lives. So, you know, it's it's also harsh of us to kind of judge the care that he was getting in 1990 through a 2020 lens.
1: I think that's a super good point and something that we were even talking about going back to the 1950s about, you know, that at the beginning we sort of were a little feeling harsh about Ma and not knowing how much, you know, she was helping Thomas. And then, you know, we all came around to the idea of like there was no support for her. There was nowhere for her to take Thomas where he wasn't just going to be institutionalized or something like that. Like so remembering the, the different settings and the time period. And what's available at that point is super important.
0: I think another thing to put on the dock for next week is we saw it a little bit. So I don't think it's really worth talking about this week is when Dominic goes to visit Ray and the entire scene is just him go after he visits the Rude's house that uh, he's not doing the work on. He goes to visit his stepfather. asleep on the couch, and he covers him with a blanket while he's voicing over about all of the kill fantasies that he had about Rey over the years. There's a whole complex dynamic there, but there's also this undercurrent of heritage and identity, which we talked about last week, and I think is going to be part of Dominic's story and his journey is who he is, the, you know, he refers to him as a wasp from Youngstown, Ohio, and there's not a bit of Italian blood or DePesto blood in that ancestral home of the DePestos in Connecticut. It was really disproportionate anger as he was talking about it. Some real, some real venom spitting it as he's voicing over about that. That this wasp is living in this house built by mighty Italians. Really interesting, but I think I think it may be something that we want to bookmark for next week to see if that develops more.
2: Can I jump into there was also something that Thomas said in the tape that was played by Dr. Patel, where he talks about Dominic used to teach, he used to be a teacher. And, you know, Dominic was just sitting there with his head in his hands and this look of just anguish on his face. And it was just like, well, what happened to your teaching career? Where did that go? Like, where did that fall in the timeline of your life you know, from what, you know, these huge upheavals that you've had from, you know, Thomas's diagnosis and being his, you know, de facto caretaker to the implosion of your marriage with the death of the baby. Like, where did that go? Like, that just seemed to be such a pivotal part of his life that just got kind of just whoop right over.
3: I think this episode really just brought us down to Dominic's level. Like, I think it helped me understand just how low this is for him. And he says in one of the voiceover, or I, th- I can't remember if he says it to Dr. Patel or in a voiceover, but he just says, like, this has all been dragging me down and I'm, like, getting enough rope to just barely take a breath. Like, I feel that in this episode for Dominic. And I feel like all of these, I feel like I needed to see all of that to understand why Dominic is where he is. So, I mean, I don't, I didn't catch that part about him being a teacher. I didn't hear that part, but I heard in that conversation of just like, I've lost all of, you know, I have all of these things that have just like gone away because of these burdens.
0: That's the scene where he, he finally says, you know, that Thomas is my curse.
3: Yeah, that was harsh.
0: Harsh. Harsh, but I mean, very consistent with what we saw. I mean, it's not like it came out of nowhere.
1: Well, you guys, I think this was an excellent discussion. There's a lot of things for us to think about, you know, the role of the caretaker and and can you be a good caretaker and still have a lot of resentment towards the person you're caring for? Is that a whole topic for us to talk about next week? I think so. So uh, this is Caroline. This is Steph. This is Sheila.
0: And this is Mike. Thanks for listening to the I Know This Much Is True podcast. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production.